if you deploy these satellites in a certain way, you can detect millimeter level changes in things. Literally, uh, we, we, are, we have proven that you can see a footprint in the snow, for example. Well, here in the UK, the sun is shining and spring is most definitely on its way. Matthew Grant here, partner at Instech London, your host for our podcast and most definitely fair weather enthusiast. Well, thank you for joining us again. And if it's your first time, delighted to have you. Now, aren't podcasts just great? I mean, what other kind of work can you do whilst lying in the sun with your eyes closed? But please just don't fall asleep on me. Now, this is an interview I've been looking forward to doing for over a year since I first heard about ISI and the miniature satellites they've been sending into space. There's been a lot of focus on location intelligence in the last few months here at Instech London as we put together our next deep dive reports into the subjects of importance to insurance. I've been traveling around the world, well, from the comfort of my home, talking to those companies that are building and using the data and technology to help insurers learn more about what it is that they are actually insuring. And we've been joined by some great new corporate members along the way. Now, of course, it's not just about understanding about properties at the point of underwriting. It's very important for insurers to also be able to measure the extent of a loss quickly after an event that has happened. Charles Manchet from ISI is going to explain in a minute how the company is able to offer a rapid assessment of flood losses anywhere in the world and why they've been able to sign up with some leading insurers only a few months after being founded. Now look out for our location intelligence report. It's going to be released on the 1st of April and you'll also have a chance to hear from Charles again and some other great data providers on stage with us and ask your questions to find out more about what's going on in this area. And with that, let's head up to the stratosphere. Charles, I am really looking forward to this interview today. I think you've got an incredible company. I just love the idea about these little satellites you put up that you can then deploy into areas that have been flooded so quickly and learn about it. Just a bit of background for you, first of all, add anything to this you think we should know about. You are the uh, Vice President for Solutions at ISI, and you yourself, I noticed, have got quite a wide-ranging background in technology and data. I think you joined ISI about a year ago, actually, February 2020, when the company was set up. And uh, based on what you've told me so far, it looks like you've had you've <laughs> a very busy time and had some phenomenal success bring in bring in clients so uh, congratulations and uh, anything i've missed in that list of uh, what you've been up to no i mean the common theme is um launching technology um that has never been done before and helping early adopters be successful with it i've done that for 20 years and then just talking a bit about iSize. so you are i guess a satellite manufacturer but also you provide almost like what i would call a full service offering so you put the satellites up into the sky you can deploy them from an insurance point of view you're looking at real-time monitoring of events that get specifically flood just now and are actually able to define the depth data we'll talk a bit about how you do that Uh, and the idea of that is you can then help companies understand what the losses have been fairly quickly after an event and i think you're somewhat unique in the sense you've got that ability not just to create and put the satellites up, but actually also to provide data directly into insurers. So I'd uh, love to hear a bit more about you know, where the company came from and uh, you know, why you see this area as something you should be focusing on. The company came from uh, our two young and uh, innovative co-founders, 
uh, meeting in college and um, taking on a project that they were told was impossible. Um, and that was miniaturizing synthetic aperture radar. And the synthetic aperture radar is, is this technology that allows you to observe Earth through clouds at night um, and, uh, and detect very small changes. Um, and the, you know, the thesis behind this business is that deploy the world's largest and highest quality um, synthetic aperture radar constellation. We actually manufacture the parts, we assemble the, the satellites, we launch them into space, we, um, we manage the constellation, we pull data down from those, those satellites after we point them at something. And then what my team does, so there's, there's a whole side of the business that does all that other stuff, but what my team does is democratizes the data. So synthetic aperture radar data is incredibly difficult to work with. Um, the insurance industry shouldn't have to deal with you know, what we're dealing with to get it into a usable form. And so what we do is we make massive investments in third-party data, um, in analytical technologies like machine learning and algorithms, and we mix those together through a series of processes and produce a file that is just you know, directly actionable, which is usually a spreadsheet for the insurance organizations. We, we have uh, more sophisticated files they can work with, but the easiest way to think about it is a spreadsheet that has, for example, for floods, you know, rows of data that say this is a property, and columns of data that say this is the depth of the water. The name ISI, uh, there's a story behind how the name came about, which I think was one of the original applications for the satellites. Is that right? Yeah, the original application, um, our first round of funding came from Exxon, the oil company. And originally, um, the price of oil was very high. And so we were asked to build a technology that could help oil exploration on the, the polar caps. Um, the oil prices dropped. And we actually had to pivot and find a different market, which is why we ended up here. The side of the business you're involved in was a year old, but the actual company has been building satellites for a bit longer than that. The company's been around for uh, 10 years. Um, and, you know, as you can imagine, there's a lot of research and development that goes on with this. We had to, the first version of our technology was a radar on a cart on a university. The second iteration was actually on a plane. Um, and then you had to, we had to put prototypes up into space and then, you know, get an actual working satellite up into space. And then it's taken us some time um, to get the critical mass that's, that we're now at uh, um, seven satellites in orbit. And that's when you can start unlocking use cases, that, you know, that, that, that require a higher temporal resolution, which means you have to be able to get to places uh, fast enough. So you've got seven satellites up in space and the way this operates then so we're just thinking now about from a practical point of view so if, if a flood happens you can actually call up those satellites or i'm sure there's a more technical word than that and you can send them off to go and take a look at where where the floods occurred and, and so how long does it take from when an event has happened or i guess particularly when you get the peak flooding which is what's important to then be able to get a satellite on station to be able to uh, review that that's a great question yeah capturing the high water mark of a flood is very difficult you know the high water mark can last somewhere between an instant and wane, you know, uh, very quickly, or sometimes they, they last for a while. But how fast we can get there depends on where we're at on the planet. So the further north or south you go off the equator, the faster we can get there. The satellites actually orbit the Earth in a what's called a polar orbit at 17,000 kilometers per hour. And so the more uh, we get up there, you know, they're just on a steady orbit. The more we get up there, the lower the time it takes to, for us to get to a place. 
I did a, a pretty comprehensive study of floods last year and came to the conclusion that we needed seven um, to actually effectively do this. We just now got there. We actually had a pretty successful flood season last year with just three satellites. Now we've got a slightly easier job. Um, the good news is that we're on target to, to have 14 in orbit. So we'll have double the capacity required to, I think, capture all of the floods that insurance cares about. But because we had to start um, with not enough satellites, we had to get really creative and figure out how to add other data sets, such as river gauges, in order to extrapolate the high watermark a little bit. You know, So if we get there like an hour before and after, we now have the methods and the data sources available to engineer that high watermark. I believe you, your satellites are quite small, the ones you set up. You, you probably couldn't fit a Tesla into an ISI satellite. Is that right? If you managed to sort of miniaturize the deployment of satellites? Quite the other way around. You could probably fit one of our satellites into a Tesla. So uh, yeah, they're small. And what, what matters for, you know, why small, why that matters is, is that these satellites used to cost hundreds of millions of dollars to build. And, and that meant that only large, well-funded government programs could afford to, to put them up in space. And so our co-founders invented the concept. And literally there was papers written about how this was never going to be possible. And that's why they did it. In fact, one of our, our mottos is make the impossible possible. And because that's what we did is we miniaturized them. And why that matters is we made them a lot less expensive. And so that makes it commercially viable for us to put enough of them up in orbit to start unlocking use cases that are difficult, like capturing the high watermarks of floods. And I guess it's also is it why it's sort of cheaper to get them on site, if that's the right word. Uh, in the sense, if you've got a large satellite out there or some of the traditional satellite providers, it's quite expensive to redeploy them. Whereas if you've got your own ones and they're a bit smaller, I'm not quite sure if that's strictly speaking true, but it seems like it might be a bit cheaper to get them over to where a floods occurred. It's less expensive to manufacture and deploy them into space. And therefore we can afford to put this year, you know, we'll have 14 of them up into orbit um, in the past. I mean, it just wasn't possible. It was going to be, you know, that would have cost billions of dollars in the past and we've made it a millions of dollars thing and then for a technology point of view you touched on this but you're using uh, synthetic aperture data or sar that you can use to identify what's on the ground can you just talk a little bit about what that does versus the more traditional optical satellites and the other ways that you know, things might be changing in terms of satellite image acquisition what people are most familiar with is optical imagery um, which is great. And we, we actually use optical imagery and it, it's, it's like the camera in your, in your iPhone, you know, it's just, it's taking pictures of the planet. Uh, so for use cases where you need to see like the color of a plant, you know, to, to determine its health, it's really good. That's why agriculture uses optical imagery so bad. The problem with optical imagery is it's not dependable. If there is cloud cover or it's night, it's not usable. And so I was asked to come in actually and pick a use case that was, really well suited for synthetic aperture radar, what we do, because we see through clouds, we see at night, um, and we can detect, there's actually, if you deploy these satellites in a certain way, you can detect millimeter level changes in things. Literally, uh, we, we, are, we have proven that you can see a footprint in the snow, for example. The way ours worked, instead of a camera, we actually beam energy onto the planet, and that energy reflects back and we receive a certain signature and that allows us to, um, you know, see things like water. That's really interesting. And so just thinking about the use case of flood, is there a different cost 
Uh, I'm not quite sure if a loss adjuster wants to get a footprint, but you can see that you know, in terms of resolution, clearly the higher the resolution, the more accurate the loss assessment is going to be. But I'm guessing that's going to have a cost associated with higher volumes of data and more data to process. Mm, I mean, uh, no, uh, the the volume of data, it's a spreadsheet. You know, when it, when it gets to a loss adjuster or to a direct insurer, you're talking about a CSV file that you can email to them. So let's just talk about the use case then. So I'm guessing there's two ways this could be used. One is for insurance companies that need to understand very quickly because they've got their investors or analysts breathing down their neck trying to work out what the loss could be and the faster they can get information that they can put into their own analysis are better. And I guess the second one would actually be the deployment of people to go and do the loss adjustments and some kind of triage. Is that, are those the two main use cases that you're, you're finding with your clients? Yes. So um, like you said, we, we can help people understand loss numbers in the storm we just you know monitored in, in the UK, Storm Christoph. We produced that analysis and it was across 20,000 square kilometers of land. We produced that analysis within 12 hours of the peak. So Imagine as an insurer or a loss adjuster, you know, gaining access to the hazard data. So we don't do damage data, we do hazard data. So that's the the depth and footprint of the flood down to the building level. And so people can take that data, convert it to damage, and then convert it to losses using the same tools that they've always, you know, used. And that allows them to then understand the, you know, full loss of the event at the portfolio level. And then they can then say, okay, well, we need to set aside this amount of capital, um, and therefore, you know, not have to over or undercommit. You know, that's set aside, which is really important to the core of the insurance industry, which is trying to keep their money deployed in the, the capital markets. Yeah, no, certainly that whole loss estimation process is really, really important to get right. As you said, if they're too conservative, then they've got to hold capital back. If they come out too low, then they can get into problems with the investors and the markets and yeah, all sorts of reasons for making it more efficient. But I just want to talk a bit about how you actually provide the data. So interested as when you said that you provide them as spreadsheets or CSV files, is that the feedback you've got from companies you've talked to? They just prefer to get it in that raw data format. They can then use it across different tools or models they may have. Yeah, yeah. Well, we have made a firm decision to be a truth company, not a religion company. And by that, I mean, we're just observing what happened and, and giving the insurance industry and governments um, that reality. Um, and then we're not trying to get up into the insurance business of understanding damage and converting that to loss and all that with the floods. You know, like there's thousands of companies out there that have a core competency of that. And we're not going to try to reinvent that wheel. We're just going to stick to what we're really good at, which is observing what happened. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then you also mentioned in passing around complementing what you're seeing from the aerial imagery with uh, flood depth gauges and things. So so how, how does that work, combining those two different sets of data and, and what sources are you using for sort of ground truthing the, uh, the flood depth? The third-party data is a huge endeavor for us. Um, not quite as big as like launching a whole satellite constellation, but it's pretty big. Um, you know, we have a team dedicated to acquiring uh, and onboarding third-party data and a multi-million dollar budget assigned to it. We found that the synthetic aperture radar data is key, but without a good digital elevation model, uh, great weather data, great building footprints, and the list goes on and on and on. Without that, you can't deliver the degree of accuracy that our clients are demanding that the water is a certain depth 
I would call it a big data cocktail that you have to mix together uh, in order to make this possible. And the sources of data you're going after then, can you talk about any of the companies who you're working with or partnering with to get that other data? There's a lot of free data out there that we acquire, but that's a job. Like, you know, identifying, normalizing, onboarding, and, you know, on a routine basis, getting that data is a big job. And I would say about the other half of the data we have to purchase commercially. We probably have about 20 commercial data vendors you know, that supply us from everything from digital elevation models to building footprints to weather data. So you're providing very high resolution, high quality data. When you look to partner with organizations, presumably you also need to partner with people that have got data that is consistent in quality with what you're offering. Just a quick comment on that. What's, what, what is interesting though, like this data problem is, is a huge challenge for us, but Number one, we need to build products that don't depend that much on the data. Um, and number two, our, our technology can actually end up producing some of this data. Um, so, you know, you can build some of these data sets using our, our satellites, believe it or not. Well, exciting stuff, eh? Now, I'll be back talking to Charles in a minute, but a quick commercial break here. Many thanks to all of you around the world who've been telling me how much you enjoy our podcast. With our steady growth in listeners and over 85,000 downloads so far and many more excellent guests lined up, this could be a great chance for you to tell the world what you're up to. So if you're interested in being featured as a regular sponsor on the podcast, drop us an email at hello at instec.london or contact me directly via LinkedIn. Now, back to the show. Charles, you've had... A lot of success in the last year, bringing in a couple of uh, major clients. You know, a lot of companies can take a long time to sign up organizations, get by on the the, the uh, POCs and things. We'll talk a bit about that. But I, I know you can publicly mention Tokyo Marine, Swiss Re, and, and the World Bank. So can you talk a little bit about what you're doing with, with those organizations? A lot of the World Bank type work that we're doing is about you know, helping, we're doing work in Tanzania right now, and we're developing kind of a, a full complement of data and technologies. And they've taken a really good approach to this. They, they wanted to understand like how to trigger when a flood is going to happen. That's actually a huge problem that we've had to build an entire set of products around it, just finding the floods. Um, I would say that we, we will invest probably $5 million in research and development this year on just that alone. Um, and so World Bank was smart enough to know that that was a big challenge. So that's part of it. They've created an entire ecosystem for us to trigger, capture the flood, and then they're going to help us measure the performance of it, which is really important as we start to develop more and more machine learning. Um, we need to be working with folks like the World Bank, direct insurers and insurance adjusters to create this amazing feedback loop of the field visits and then pump that into our products so that they can get better and better. You know, the other work that we're doing we're looking at doing a project that we haven't been officially awarded it. So I won't mention like specifics about it, but it's creating a parametric offering for the government um, of a, um, an East Asian country. Um, and so we're doing some, a lot of research and development around that for the direct insurers. And I think the name of the game is slowly, but surely enabling the automation of their, their claims process, even if it's an indemnity based claims process. We know that there's a segment of the data that can just automate claims. When we're very confident in the, in the measurements and when, when the water is very deep, the, the, the insurance companies can just cut the checks. And that's what we're working on with our clients now. Then there's like a, 
on the left-hand side was when the water's really shallow and maybe we're not so confident in it. We have a confident score that we attach to every, every data measurement. That data can be used for just like alerting a client, like, hey, you might've been flooded, do this. Um, and then in the middle, we're finding the water's like kind of medium level depth and mid-level confidence. We're corroborating the data, for example, from the insurer's mobile app you know, if they can take a picture of something and our data says this, bringing those two data points together, and maybe the client needs to sign something, you know, that says, believe me, then we can do like kind of a, an automation through corroboration of, of multiple data points. Yeah, that's really interesting. So that first example you used there, so it sounds like there are organizations you're working with that just simply based on the flood debt, they know there's been damage done to the building. So they can essentially settle a claim before maybe even the policyholder even puts the, puts the claim in. Great for customer satisfaction, reduces the cost of sending out a loss of justice. No, it's a really, really powerful use case. And actually, you can demonstrate the cost savings, presumably, very quickly from that. Uh, and then just in terms of validating this, and you touched on that earlier on, we've had a lot of floods in the last few months. Uh, have you got any examples of where you've been able to use the floods, look at the flood you know, depth once it's actually known and people actually are going out and doing the loss adjustment and how, you know, what you've offered to your clients has played out in terms of practical validation of uh, the, the, the loss estimates or the, or the depth estimates. The interesting thing that we've learned is that there's so many floods. Like on, you know, today we are, we are addressing six globally just today. And that's every day. I've never seen it go below three that we're doing on a daily basis. And the most we've seen is like nine. Really, uh, showtime for us is this typhoon season and hurricane season, the tropical storm season, basically that's coming uh, in the next several months. That's that's game time for us. You know, um, we're gearing up for that. We're running practice run drills and stuff like that. We we really the whole name of the game of the first half of this year was getting ready for that season. Um, and I would say we're we're ready today, um, but we even have a couple more months and. Uh, we'll be putting more satellites in orbit between now and then. And so we'll we'll definitely be ready by the time uh, the June-July season comes. Yeah, that concept of fire drills is really interesting. I mean, that's what some of the insurance companies are doing. I don't think all of them do it. But uh, you know, preparing for a, a major loss event, they, you know, they'd be working with you to get data. They themselves need to be geared up to figure out how do they bring that into their own models, you know, whether it's a flood or hurricanes. As you, as you say, once we get into June, certainly for uh, hurricanes for the US, you start to get a hurricane season. And as you've seen last year, yeah, these days, a lot of those hurricanes are either carrying a lot of water with them as rain or they're driving storm surge or a combination of of, uh, of both. Uh, and it, so it sounds like you also, you've got a, would you have a kind of uh, an operations room there or a war room where you're sitting watching the floods coming in and then if it looks like it's going to be a big one, you're, you kind of everybody charges around and make sure you're ready to give the data to the clients? Yeah, let me comment on a couple of things you said there. So first off, operationalizing this data is a is a big change for our clients. And so we're developing a, an advisory practice basically that helps people understand the business rules that need to be created, you know, in order to um, take full advantage of this data. Believe it or not, the technical imp- implementation is very simple. It's the business change that that is um, important. We do have um, several operations rooms, one for the satellites and and one that is tracking the floods. Um, and then we have a flood team um, that does this all day, every day. It's a 24 by seven holidays, weekends, floods never stop. In fact, for some reason, they seem to happen on the weekends. And we have a full-time meteorologist on staff that we call them Waddles and Floodles. So these um, 
There's a weather huddle and a flood huddle. There's two of each that happen each day. And so this is where you know human beings get together um, with subject matter expertise, look at a bunch of data. We're actually building internal software systems that you know are are purpose built for this, and decisions are made. You know, and and there's different levels that we start you know working with the constellation depending on how serious the situation is and how important it's going to be to insurance companies and governments. It's like probably one of the more exciting and interesting parts of my day when I get to like go to these waddles and floodles um, and, uh, you know, see them make decisions. It's amazing how fast we're moving. That concept didn't exist in our business 90 days ago. And in, in the past 90 days, we've assigned, you know, five dedicated people. We're building software products. We're drawing in tons of data. We've got business processes around it. And we're able to make consistent decisions around what we go after. Yeah, that's really fascinating. The waddle and the floodle, if I got that right. Uh, and it sounds like you're actually now, well, you are, you're getting data that would be very valuable to insurance companies for helping them understand what's happening. Are you, are you starting in addition to providing the loss data? Are you also starting to find ways where you can help insurance companies uh, get access to your forecasting data or at least alerts related to floods around the world? Yeah, what we're finding is that we're just including that in our regular products. Um, so we've, we've built that for concept for floods. And now, you know, for example, we're looking at um, engaging with a big loss adjuster uh, you know, company. And they find that that alert data is just as valuable as the flood data, right? Like, so they can mobilize resources. And so part of our onboarding process that we propose to them is to kind of take these two different data sets, the, the alerting data set and the flood hazard data that we give them and to, you know, our onboarding is to figure out, to help them, you know, figure out the systems that they need to integrate with in order to, you know, operationalize the data. And then the business processes um, that are required uh, in order to deploy people and do what they do. But yes, both data sets we're finding are, are valuable to our clients, but we've just like kind of bundled them together and made it, made it one offering. Yeah, because there's a, a pretty significant percentage of loss that can be saved if company or individuals are able to take action before a flood occurs, whether it's moving possessions upstairs or putting flood defences in place. I mean, I, I think we're going to see a lot more in that area. Yeah, rather like your comments earlier on, some of the things you're doing, I think, with the World Bank around helping with risk financing and disaster financing. You know, there's, a lot, there's a lot of benefit to be had from doing that before the event happens rather than after the event. The proactivity is something that some of our clients are really, really interested in. And one uh, large insurer came to us the other day with a presentation on, on what they wanted us to, to work on with them. And it put us in a different direction. And we're actually, we've, we've accepted their offer and we're going to be building this product. Um, it's, we're calling it per persistent insured asset monitoring. And so this kind of breaks us out of like the natural catastrophe a little bit. And what we're going to be doing is every month um, imaging the insured assets and delivering to the client a, a simple report, probably a spreadsheet that says, here are the assets that have changed. And then they've agreed to go out into the field, investigate those changes, bring that data back to us. You know, what happened? Was it a tree on the roof? Was there a crack in the roof? Uh, did somebody add a swimming pool or add a wing on or whatever? Um, and we're going to start feeding that in as labels into our products and, um, you know, delivering uh, more and more granular features on top of that. But the, 
what they want to do is they want to prevent, you know, from the hole in the, in the roof, creating like, you know, water going through and then that water getting into the electrical systems and causing a fire. And then the whole factory, you know, is, is a loss. Um, they want to be that proactive insurer that, that tells their client that something is wrong with their building and helps them fix it before the problem happens. Yeah. And that, that's a brilliant area to be focusing on. Again, we're seeing companies coming out doing that in all sorts of different ways, whether it's putting sensors in buildings to monitor changes in performance, including uh, earthquake shake and things like that. So I can see a lot more opportunities around that. And then you're doing flood today. I know you're now starting to look at some other hazards as well. Can you, you talk a bit about where you might be going next? We're actually going to use that persistent insured asset monitoring solution as a baseline to start feeding in you know, field reports. But then as these events happen, floods, uh, floods is actually different. Floods is a observing water problem. But when you look at wildfire, wind, earthquake, and that concept of persistent insured asset monitoring, all of those are a change detection problem. And so we've kind of grouped all those together and we have, um, we've begun a research and development initiative in partnership with several clients um, in which we will be getting out of the hazard data world with floods and we're getting into the damage layer with wildfire. You know, imagine us being able to say whether or not the building has been impacted and to what degree. When I've had conversations with FEMA, for example, that is uh, heaven on earth to them. You know, if they could just instantly, you know, within you know 24 hours after a fire ripping through a community, they want to deploy checks. And, you know, with our data, we think that we're going to be able to do that. Wind as well, earthquake as well, same problems. It's just going to be a journey of like creating this feedback loop between us and our clients and getting a lot of reps in. So moving from flood into wind, into wildfire, into earthquake, a whole, you know, all the sort of hazards that are out there, you can now start to uh, now start to track. And then just back a bit on the people you work for on the clients and in particular people are interested in, with engaging with you. Who typically are you finding that you're most successful with when you talk to people in, in insurance organizations? It's organizations with leadership that have a firm commitment to innovation and transformation. And you know what we've found is that we need to be pretty high in the organization, uh, in the C-suite. This is a board level decision to transform a business. I find that everybody in the organization is interested and fascinated and wants to make these changes. I think it takes a firm commitment from senior leadership in order to actually make it happen. What's great, what you've got with eyesight is you can completely see what the elevator pitch would be. You can explain, and you have done uh, in yeah, less than 20 seconds, what the business does and why it's important to use it. And you've got evidence to show the success. So I, I think it's you know, fantastic for lots of reasons. And then you've very generously supported us at Instat London as a corporate member. It'd be great just to hear a little bit about why you chose to do that and any thoughts about what we could be doing more together in the future. Yeah, well, we um, we have something that's really special, uh, and I, I believe that, and I, uh, our clients would tell you that, and we just want to, you know, let everybody know that it's available and educate people. I know it's a long process sometimes to create these cases internally, and um, we want to supply a steady stream of evidence of what we're doing. You know, we're going to be capturing all of these events, and we're going to be, you know, producing content about it, and we want to distribute that through your organization. And we also want to get that, you know, get that into the hands of people who are trying to make the case, you know, whether it's a CEO trying to make a case to, to his or her board, or if it's someone in the middle of the organization that wants to be a, a trailblazer. Our goal is to just 
be loud and proud about what we're doing and, and get as many people involved as possible. Because what's interesting is the more clients we get, as I told you, that feedback loop between the field observations that our clients give us and our product, every one of those gets us a, a, a better, more accurate product. Fantastic. And, and so for anybody who wants to learn more about ISI, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Email me. <laughs> My email is charles.blanchet at isi.com. You can go to isi.com. We have a, a flood area that you can go to and you can look at some of our work and kind of you know, see what it is that we've built. We'll put your email address in the episode notes and on the website. And we'll also, of course, be sharing as usual the, uh, the highlights from this in words as well. Well, Charles, it's only, uh, I think we're just breaking up to 10 o'clock in the morning now, and there are already six floods going on today. So I'm sure you've got a lot of waddles and huddles to get to. So uh, that was fantastic. Uh, really enjoyed that and, and just love what you're doing. It's so fascinating. And I look forward to hearing more from you and getting together face to face, you know, based on where things are going. It could be, uh, could be in the summer this year. So oh, that would be great. Well, thank you, Matthew. We're very excited about uh, partnering with your organization and um, and also just working with the industry and with government to, you know, just make dealing with these natural catastrophes a lot easier. Yeah. And no, I think we're going to hear a lot more from you in the next few months. Okay. Well, thanks, Charles. Cheers. I definitely recommend talking to Charles or the team at ISI if you want to learn more about how they might be able to help you. And of course, look out for our event on the 1st of April. Now, we have been thrilled to be working with so many more corporate members from insurance and technology, and we are building out our team to ensure we can keep our frequent check-ins with our members and ensure we're supporting your goals around innovation throughout the course of the year. You can find out more on the website or for me, Matthew Grant on LinkedIn. Back next week with another excellent CEO founder, Cole Winnins of Flyreel, and here's a taste of what to expect. We had developed an early proof of concept where using the smartphone, you could pan across a room and it would create a list of items in that room automatically using computer vision. And we were thinking, well, maybe this is valuable in real estate. Maybe it could be valuable in other use cases. And one of them was insurance. Well, join me next week to find out what happens next. Oh, and if you've just woken up from your snooze in the sun, you can, of course, find our written highlights of this podcast and everything else we're up to at www.instec.london.